This is Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. I'm Dane Sanders. A while back, I received an unsolicited email from this amazing creative in business named Tai Fujimura. If that name sounds familiar, it's because he's the principal of Cantilever.co, the main sponsor of this podcast. He originally reached out because he wanted to create a show about the convergence of business and creativity. And remarkably, when he found this show, he decided he'd rather support us than go it alone. I love that. Well, as we were ironing out the details, we became friends. And a few months later, I discovered that Tai's dad was Makoto Fujimura, an artistic hero of mine. Now, for those of you who don't know, Mako is a world-class contemporary artist whose slow art has been described by David Brooks of the New York Times as, quote, a small rebellion against the quickening of time. High praise. And he's not kidding. You got to see his work, not to mention his process. Look him up. Anyways, when I realized the connection, I tweeted how excited I was. You see, I had met Mako at a talk I had attended in New York a few years ago, but never expected a response. But because Ty was Mako's son, Mako replied, suggesting that the three of us should jump on Converge. And that is what this week's episode is all about. So as you hear Ty talk about things like digital hospitality and you learn more about slow art, you'll begin to hear not only the organic evolution from analog to digital art in a single generation within one family, but you'll also hear firsthand what it's like to navigate the ongoing and evolving tension between creativity and commerce. Enjoy. Can I, I want to jump right in on this, this idea of pulverized minerals, because no. <laughs> I know that's a phrase. Not just crushed, <laughs> pulverized. Destroyed. Just and there's a, an incredible documentary or website that kind of illuminates it kind of profoundly, but talk a little bit about what some of your thinking and experience and relationship with pulverized minerals, because it, it creates a unique effect that actually draws the viewer in in a way that's really rare. Talk a little bit about that. David Brooks and New York Times called it um, slow art and uh, a rebellion against uh, the, the speed of um, internet, uh, a kind of an antidote to uh, time. And the pulverized minerals layered over and over on the surface will create refractive prismatic surface. And you, it takes about 10 minutes for your eye to, your brain to rest and your eye to see. Uh, your, your eye can see, but your brain shuts it down a lot of the info uh, for survival sakes. So what I'm trying to do is create uh, a surface that our senses uh, can enlarge, be enlarged and experience something deeper. This prismatic light, they're, they're created by literally thousands of minerals that are pulverized into prisms, little prisms. So um, you literally can, if you spend enough time staring at my painting, see rainbow hues. And so that is quite unusual. But it is a technique that, that is also ancient. It is something that Japanese artists used in, you know, from 15th, 15th century on. They, they, you see paintings that, that use the same materials that I use. And if I could interject on that, uh, Dane, I've I've spent a fair amount of time staring <laughs> at these things over the years, and so I I've, I have a, a decent perspective. I think the the, the minerals and the, the entire process really ultimately create more of an object than an image. Mm -hmm. So if you look at one of Mako's paintings on the web, uh, we actually just released a new website uh, for Mako as well, MakotoFujimura.com. You're basically getting one version or one angle on that image. But if you're actually with the painting in real life, every perspective that you take around the painting is going to offer you something different. And that's because there's all these different layers of both minerals, gold and silver and other materials that are coming together. So they have a multidimensional aspect. And that's why I think a lot of the time you can kind of there, you can sense a depth in them because they're more than than just two-dimensional. One of my favorite things with, with my dad's paintings, and this is extended into other art, is that I will often go up to the painting and then I will start looking at the side. Yeah. And when you look at the side, yeah. you look at it from a 90 degree 
angle, you see more of the process. You see more of the artisanship that went into it because you can start to identify the areas that received more work, the areas that received less work, and uh, the different uh, techniques that went into it. In addition to actually seeing a lot of the time, you'll see Mako's brush strokes kind of extending around the corner of the image, which is kind of neat as well. So I've gotten into, into this habit of going up to paintings and then looking at them from the side like a weirdo. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, I have, you know, people probably think that I'm I'm insane, but I, I find it very profound to see not just the um, initial impression that you get, but to go a little bit deeper with the image as well. And your uh, company cantilever designed uh, you designed my old site and then you uh, your company designed my new just just recently re released and uh, new okay. website makotofujima.com um, and if you go there you will see examples of how Thai might <laughs> encounter my mm. my my mm. paintings and it, it is it is really interesting how you know this 3d effect or layers that reveal themselves after a while after looking at it after living with it actually you you find it's so much more depending on the light too it will change so how, how important is the monumental size to the experience yeah so i am deeply indebted to american abstract expressionists like uh, jackson park and rothko and others even some of the minimalists like ellsworth kelly and agnes martin they they express the ephemeral uh, something that y you may not realize is uh, important. They express this um, way of uh, the mystery, really, of uh, contemporary existence, uh, modern ex existence, and. So I am quoting them. I am trying to speak to them. Uh, and, and of course, my influence of 16th and 17th century Japanese art, in my mind, is connected to many of the expressions of 20th century and now 21st century um, because of the influence that Japanese art has had on how people see the world, starting from you know, Impressionist, uh, Van Gogh, uh, certainly directly influenced by Japanese art. Uh, so, so there's there's a conversation there, and 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 plus there are uh, these monumental paintings, very much about how how the body moves, and and how that. So so they're really party dance um, as much as they are paintings. One of the things that people wouldn't necessarily know about the larger pieces is that they, in their creation. They involve a good deal of kinetic yeah. activity. So when Mako is painting a large image, he's not just putting a brush to paper, to, to paper in a larger fashion. He's actually getting up with the, the image. He's moving it around. He's tilting it. And yeah. he kind of tilts it. And then he stares at it in the way that like Tiger Woods looks at <laughs> a putt and, and, and sits there for, for five minutes kind of watching how the, the uh, pigment is moving in little, little rivulets on the canvas. So there's a lot more um, of that, like direct physical expression that goes into those images, uh, and I think they're they're very special as a consequence. Um, but Mako's work, when you look at some of the smaller pieces and you see the intricacy of the detail in those cases, one of my favorites is in Mako's kitchen. So it's maybe two by one and a half foot image. If you took a photo of it, it would look like a giant painting. You would assume it was a giant painting, but it's this little thing. Uh, and I find that very, very interesting that there's adaptability of the technique across these different sizes. Yeah, that painting is in Japan. Uh, it was shown at Panasonic Museum with uh, George Rulot's work um, in in April. I couldn't go, but uh, my painting did, and uh, so it's it's there. Uh, gravity is very important to my work, and and that's part of the language of abstract expressionism is 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 letting the gravity speak on its own uh, to define a surface and and create mystery. Uh, so so that's that's what I carry with me as well. One of my favorite things about an audio podcast is how visual it is, meaning there's listeners right now <laughs> who are tracking you guys word by I'm one of them listening in. They're building up a picture in their mind of what you're describing, kind of looking at things front, looking at things side, considering dimension. And I, I was even, as you were talking, my mind wandered to like 
are these things live? Like, does the paint dry? Does it still keep its energy in yeah. it over time? And uh, it, it feels very much like Star Wars, like the Force kind of thing at some point. And, <laughs> and it's super cool. But where I want to go from here is actually, you know, if someone has a very sophisticated kind of understanding of the things you're describing, that's awesome. If it's more introductory, that's totally fine. But what I want to do is actually extend the conversation to the context within which you made it or have made much of your work. And and really the context to which you guys, <laughs> Ty, you came into being, <laughs> you guys uh, grew up in New York City uh, in, a, in a particular yeah. era and talk mm. about a, a city that understands what pulverized minerals means, that's it. And I'm just wondering if you could contextualize coming in as an immigrant, uh, first generation it sounds like, and then taking this style of artistic expression and creating that work in this context. And, I, and I'm just wondering if yeah. you can connect some of the metaphorical dots here for the listener as to what it was like to create this kind of work in that kind of a city, in, in New York City. After going to college in Pennsylvania, I went to Bucknell University. And then after that, I went to Japan. I went back to Japan. I was there for my grade school years. Uh, so my first language is Japanese. And, and yet, when I wrote my second book, I, I had to translate it into Japanese and I couldn't do it because so I needed a translator to translate into mm. Japanese that I will modify. So so I, I'm, I'm literally in between mm. cultures I, and I don't fit. Uh, I, I don't I'm not really Japanese. Um, I'm not really American, although I carry these values as, a, as an American. I chose to be an American citizen when I was 18. So I, I have these very unusual, what I call border stocking qualities. Um, I don't belong in any culture, and yet I am, I am so both indebted, uh, in, in some ways more faithful to the traditions than even the Japanese. You know, I, I know more about 16th and 17th century Japanese culture than typical Japanese to the extent that when Martin Scorsese was making a film about 17th century Japan um, based on Shusakendo's silence, you know, I, I was able to help because I understand what, how a silversmith, you know, owns that mm. shop or not own any shop in, in, in the main streets of, uh, you know, the uh, Kyoto area. So I, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a unusual perspective. And, and I think, moving my family and with three little children to New York City is is just as crazy as anybody can imagine that scenario. Mm. I'm not sure how much Ty remembers that time, but I, that was specifically for certainly being an artist um, that took seriously my calling to be an artist, uh, that you want to be in the best milieu to refine your craft and um, to, to see if you can make it, you know, in New York as the song goes. And when, when would this have been? What years? Yeah, so this would have been in, uh, in the 90s, um, mid-90s, um, after studying traditional Japanese, Nihonga, Japanese-style painting, for six and a half years in a very prestigious lineage program, I came back to the States. Ty and Clayton, his younger brother, were already uh, in the world, and um, we lived in suburbia for a while, and um, I felt this call to move into New York City to be uh, an artist, but also to be involved in a uh, experimental church community that was, that was um, starting up at the time. So I, you know, moved in with three children and um that that was certainly a crazy thing to do uh and yeah looking back it was the best thing i i think we, we could ever do um n knowing how uh you know all of our children grew up to be so resilient and creative and you know community minded um I'm, I'm glad we did that uh even though we didn't know that that would end up you know, it's, we we have to go through the trauma of nine eleven. Growing up in New York is is amazing. It's a totally bizarre and very it's very limiting in certain ways. Uh, for instance, I didn't learn how to drive until I was twenty five, and I moved out to the suburbs. Yeah, why bother? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And the the era where where our family moved to the city, 
is the age that my children are in now, which is trippy to consider. Um, so we, I, I, we, I was in second grade, I believe, when we moved, and my children are now in first and fourth grade. It's really interesting. I, I reflect on this frequently because we're we're out in the burbs, and it is very different. There's there are substantial conveniences, and there are things that I I wouldn't envy about you know parenting in the city. Um, but I think that that uh, exposure to the 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 best and worst of humanity on a daily basis is truly eye opening. So you know I take it as a responsibility. Obviously, prior to um, uh, COVID. I used to take my kids into the city all the time. And so we, we've done a lot of the same things that I was able to do when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that, that you know, we, we're trying to replicate over time is making sure that they're, they have the freedom to wander. And mm-hmm. I thought this was a really important part of that era. Growing up with, uh, with an artist uh, father and a, a, a therapist mother is a very <laughs> unique blend of things, uh, of influences. But being able to basically you know, leave for the day with five bucks and a Metro card and figure it out. Mm. I think that's, that's profoundly good. And, and it's a good backbone for a creative and entrepreneurial mm-hmm. lifestyle. So I think all of those things are, are very true. And I'm, I'm very grateful for all the experiences we had. Uh, even in its way, I'm grateful for 9-11, uh, obviously a horrible tragedy, but something that created um profound goodness in the end as well and you know one of one of the principal memories i have of my my dad's um art career in that era was the projects after 9 11 Mm -hmm. trying to create community in the midst of a crisis mako did a, a japanese tea house in a studio in tribeca and invited people in uh while there were still you know, still uh, a cordoned off area uh, to to lower Manhattan. So there was this really profound, um, you know, response that we all observed of turning tragedy and turning hardship into beauty, recognizing the beauty in, in people and in the world and looking for healing and looking for redemption. And those things stand out very much so about our upbringing. Yeah, Ty, Ty was helping me with these projects, uh, Tribeca Temporary Projects, where we uh, literally created a ground zero uh, tea house uh, and uh, modified contemporary tea house and, and invited neighbors uh, because we, we really couldn't work and we couldn't do anything, much as it is now. Um, right. There's a lot of parallels. A lot of parallels. And um, the creativity and imagination and and, uh, kind of integration that happened in those short months, uh, we wanted to be intentionally temporary. So we call it Tribeca Temporary. And um, it has has remained as enduring. Um, Many of the artists that Ty helped uh, is no longer here with us. Um, And I, I look back to their legacy and their work um that some of them very important artists so i i I really treasure that and uh very unique Mm -hmm. time and and crisis calls for art and i want to talk about that in a second so just for for folks at home can understand who were some of the other artists who were participating so Ty uh, directly helped with Gretchen Bender, who is known as one of the media feminist uh, greats of from the 80s, uh, working with people like David Byrne and wow. others. Um, they had a seminal exhibit at Whitney Museum, and her work is included as one of the key works of pioneers of uh, media and uh, feminist expressions. Um, so uh, that's one to, to, to name many who, uh, uh, William Bozinski, who is a composer in LA now, who is uh, kind of this, uh, um, the most important ambient composers, um, very experimental composer, but he's just revered now. Uh, in uh, in fact, when uh, there was a 10th anniversary of 9-11, his works were featured by NPR uh, live uh, orchestra in at the Met. 
that it was around that time that Billy and I got to know each other well, and he literally helped me to, um, you know, send postcards out <laughs> to to these events uh, because he couldn't do anything else, and um, we needed to spend time together. But you know, ten years later, his his work called "Disintegration Loops" were featured as the commemorative piece that. NPR played on 10th anniversary of 9-11. So when I look at your work, Mako, and I, this, the words I have in my notes here are the questions I have, is he expressing, uh, is he bearing witness? Like, is it a response to something? Is it a create an, an initiation of something? And, and I'm so, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, you know, yes, it might be the answer here, but um, I'm curious if you can, again, in this moment, this kind of post 9-11, really a collective of artists, but it just seems like there's a thread line through all of this of a response to pulverized uh, reality and out of that yeah. creating expression and meaning. Yeah. But just all of those, all of those forces in one constrained space like this in a moment when there mm. probably wasn't much room for commercial efforts, this mm. is what came out. So can you just reflect a little bit on, on all of those layers? Yeah, just it's almost about life and death. It's it's really about survival. Um, if we didn't respond in some way, we will literally be not be alive. That is true today, as it was then. Um, the, the, you know, part of what I do thematically is to explore themes of trauma, uh, everything from Columbine High School to 311 uh, tsunami and earthquake. Uh, in Tohoku, Japan, uh, I have in my studio right now, if you can see it, uh, two monumental paintings called Walking on Water that came out of that time, an energy piece that now has taken on a new meaning um, with um, this pandemic, but it's the cries of our hearts painting. You know, I, I keep wanting to move beyond these things and want to paint the feast uh, that is to come. Um, and, and yet, um, I, I'm always going back and forth between uh, the brokenness of our creation and the new creation, um, which I, I, I'm also, uh, you know, I, I want to be part of. But um, yeah, at the time with Tribeca Contemporary and uh, 10 years ensuing, and, and in some ways continue to be, is, is a rediscovery of uh, trauma, what that means. Um, it's certainly in my own brokenness, but but also in you know the people that I love, and um, that that's a very significant way for me to um, manage uh, the pain and and to be able to create something new, um, something that is even joyous out of it, and I I consider it, it, it no less important that time that I had with my children um, in Ground Zero, walking on those ashes together and facing the dark, darkest of realities that, um, you know, you could ever imagine. And, and yet, um, I, I can tell you so many times when my children spoke into that uh, without knowing uh, to give me hope, uh, to even, you know, push me to get back in the studio to create something new um, because I, 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 you know, I, 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 if I didn't, um, there were, you know, things that I can't imagine not being able to create. Yeah. I think this is something that people miss about Mako's work because they see it and it, it looks beautiful and it's colorful and vivid. And a lot of the time the, the work arises from places of, of pain and difficulty, as we all experience in our lives, but, you know, personal things as well, I think it's hard for most people to understand how that could be translated into something that is joyful to sit in front of. But I think it's it's easy to look back, especially like, you know, an artist, uh, Marco's been a successful artist and has a, had a fantastic um, career. And so it's easy to just look at it as, um, you know, having fun making pictures. Mm -hmm. And that's really not it. You're you're looking at a, a therapy mm. that is critical for mm. someone of his uh, of his inclination and and his mm. type. 
So I think it's important for for people to understand that. And I think you know now that I'm mentioning it, it's a uh, it's probably true about a lot of other art that you know maybe we're we're used to interacting with this in a certain way, but that belies a a, a deeper uh, resonance. And I think it's it's important for you know creatives to to understand that that that's okay. Mm-hmm. But it, it also it, it's very interesting in a, in a commercial context because. Obviously, the work is is um, you know m- much of it is sold and owned by other people, and so I wonder for you, Dad, what how does that feel when you <laughs> take your your therapy and and someone else has it in their home? You know, it's it's well, must be very yeah. Odd. That, well, it it might be odd, but it's a it's it's an honor too. You know, I get to share uh, what I um, created out of perhaps these fissures of our experience and people have you know it has it has meant something to it has communicate right communication at first is 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 i i consider it to be very difficult uh, in a, especially in fragmented time and the kind of communion that i get to have with people through my work is is just extraordinary and and uh such a miracle to me um you know even this conversation seems so miraculous um to me because i i assume that communication is impossible you know between human beings and and yet um there is there's uh, fundamentally something that that when we try when we when we create when we take that risk you know, something flows out of us. You know, if you were to remove all the works of art and literature that came out directly out of trauma, you would lose 80% mm. of world's mm. art. Right, mm. right. You would not have Hemingway, you would not have Dante, you would not have, um, you know, J.D. Salinger, mm. Catching Rye, which was written after he came back from the war, uh, uh, traumatized. Um, and he couldn't write. Um, you would not have Emily Dickinson. You would not have, you know, all, uh, all the abstract expressionists who escaped the Nazi uh, Europe um, into New York mm-hmm. City. So, so there's something to this that that I, I, you know, I I don't want to admit. But you know, uh, Shakespeare, right? Um, he couldn't build his theater inside of London because of the Black Plague. So he had to build it. Built it you know, Globe Theater outside of London, and he created uh, quarantined um, layers of uh, audience, uh, which necessarily was segregated by the classes. But but then, you know, he wrote uh, to play them against each other and to connect them. All the, you know, plays from Macbeth to King Lear were, were designed to, you know, have the king speak to uh, the commoner. Mm-hmm. Uh, at a very significant level, and and you know, um, Juliet, um, you know, Romeo didn't realize that that she was you know still alive because their messenger was quarantined, mm. you know, <laughs> mm. and so so that that shows you something about the resiliency of humanity to create something, you know, these profound expressions, um, you know, and I, I do dare say that this time, 2020, it's going to be, uh, um, you know, amazing um, in terms of people really digging mm. deep and producing something enduring. Let me ask you about that for a second, because and this, there's so much in what you're saying, and I'm I feel like I'm watching this river flow by going, oh, I, I must pull that out. I, oh, I, there it goes. <laughs> so I'll just, a couple nods to things you both have said. People coming out of this global experience that we've had and coming out or, or living in the midst of really something antithetical to slow art. We are existing in a flurry of attention-grabbing, Everything. So I, I I hope for what you describe, Mako, that out of this will come some of the most profound art. And I'm nervous that there are artists and creatives who, in their despair, and I'm guessing even in those other seasons you described, this was true, that they they didn't actually create. They were kind of waiting for something to come back, and right at the moment when you said calling to New York earlier, and and even and I even wonder if you can comment uh, that experimental church thing that you did when you came to New York and that little throwaway line, like the feast that is to come, there's, there is a sense of like, you have lament with some sense of reason for hope. 
offer that up for the listeners because I know there's people who are listening who have just set aside their work yeah. and they it's critical they they pick it up. And and I I tell artists you know in this time uh, that's okay too. You know, it, it, there's no no um, requirement for any of us to push ourselves when we are traumatized. Um, and I, I experienced that too after 9-11. I, I couldn't paint and I couldn't, you know, I, I would go into the studio. That, that's why we did this project because none of us could. But there is something that we can create in, in the void. And, and I think that's important. And, and it's a work of love. You know, we had a reading at Tribeca Temporary um, for Ash Wednesday. Uh, instead of Ash Wednesday service, we had the reading by Kierkegaard of Works mm -hmm. of Love because we really wanted to honor, in some sense, the transcendence and hope that comes out of uh, this despair. But we didn't know what that was. You know, it would be it would have been dishonest to say, you know, we're going to just hold on to hope and, and preach that to each other in some way, even though, you know, many of us were not religious. But um, we needed something to grab onto. We, we it, uh, you know, otherwise there, there, there was no hope, you know, and and so I, out, of, out of that time. And, and I was involved in church planting project as well uh, through a Presbyterian church movement. And, and that's part of the reason why I felt we need to move in as a family. If we're, you know, going to minister to um, people around us, um, we, we really have to in, embed ourselves, incarnate in, in, in the areas that, you know, we're called to be. You know, children came as part of that package. We were, you know, walking around Chelsea when, you know, there were no other children, mm. you know, and, and, and yet things changed. Um, after 9-11, uh, more families decided to stay rather than leave. Uh, there were certainly families that left New York City, but it was amazing to see many of Ty's friends decide to stay rather than leave. And, um, you know, that, kind of kept us together and we figured out how to do you know saturday mornings soccer scheduling even though we didn't have a field because it was you know filled with military trucks you know and, and our, our baseball literally field. the literally. little league baseball field was like a triage zone yeah it's unbelievable to wow. think about uh, yeah especially now like that that area of manhattan if you're not familiar is it's like the most sanitized yeah and sort yeah. of um, kid-friendly area you can think of. And the development there has been tremendous. And the the, the money and the growth over the last 20 years, it's, it's stunning. Um, but at the time, I mean, it was still essentially a, um, you know, weekday commuter mm -hmm. zone. And then after 9-11, it was, it was a wasteland. So it was, it was a really odd thing. But, but I think it, it just proves the anti-fragility mm -hmm. of humanity that you know how how could it be that the place that was attacked is now the place where people want to bring their children yeah. how can that be and there there's something very profound in the the way that we respond to these crises and the the effects that it has on other people and I, it, while we were just talking it got me reflecting on the our, our national poet laureate mm. yes. Yes. yesterday at the the <laughs> inauguration yes. who was who stole totally. the show and and is was just unbelievable in her analysis through art of the present moment, and I think captured how so many of us feel so poignantly uh, from all sides of the aisle, from all around the country. You know, it's it's easy to trivialize art and creativity. So like, it's almost like inherent in the question, like, how do I convert my creativity into a business? That there's a triviality. To creativity right right and that's I'm not, I'm not saying that's what you're saying but i think it's you get tempting to treat it like oh it's a widget it's a it's just it's exactly a, it's right or it's either it's a widget like you widgetize it or it's it's something that's foolish and worthless and you're trying to alchemize it into profit because that's what people really need right and so that i think the answer to you know how do we unite business and creativity a lot of the time is that it's like it's a lot simpler than we think because people have this deep inherent desire and need for art, especially in their deep, hardest moments. You know, how often do you have a difficult day or situation or relationship problem? And then you turn on your favorite album mm. to, to change how you feel. 
about that situation or to, to calm yourself down or to get yourself excited to do something. So I think people miss that there's no tension between, you know, turning your creativity into your life's work because the it's your creativity is something that people need. It's actually kind of injurious to the public if you don't publish it. You know, if you if you hold your creativity back and you keep it to yourself and people don't get to experience that that release of uh, of identifying with an artistic expression. So it's it should be a simpler process. <laughs> and I hope our culture mm. gets there. Yeah. And and, you know, there's something about for those of us who can speak or create in, in the midst of trauma facing our ground zeros, we are speaking for all people who may not be able to. And when Amanda Gorman finished her lines on the day when the Capitol was ransacked, she was doing something that was profoundly needed and important um, for a new season. And what she captured was not just her own sense of poetry and an amazing performance um, and, and very, very sincere integration that was happening in her a 22 year old can do that um you know that that just exudes hope right into the future of this nation a future of democracy as well and so there there is something about the arts uh the words of a young poet you know that will lead the way uh in 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 this um this moment in history and so she is speaking for many of us who perhaps cannot articulate that well. Like, like the question I want to ask is, so what do you think of capitalism? <laughs> like it's a bit of a left turn, but it's not really because there is a sense in which it's not that we don't ship our work and, and put it in front of people so that you could benefit. Like when you were describing the benefit you received, Mako, and the benefit that those who've commissioned your work or purchased your work have in their homes, even though they might have two totally different experiences with it. And they both might, you know, induce tears even, but tears for different reasons that, that kind of benefit for that transaction to happen, something they have to come together. I would just love to hear, like, if we all understand kind of dirty capitalism, I think the kind that we don't like, but can you put a flashlight in a direction of what could a capitalism look like that would pull these pieces together in a good way? We'll be right back after this short break. Ty, I am freaking out about my experience of creating a brand new website at tellmeyourdreams.com. Coming into the project, I was overwhelmed. It just felt too complex, too many details, too many loose ends, but we're done and I'm not sweating. I didn't burn calories. Nothing got <laughs> lost. How did you take all of these loose ends and tie them up and have give me the freedom as the principal at my company to create something that I didn't think was going to be possible. Talk me through your project management. You're not going to get a ton of confusing email threads. You're not going to be in conference calls for hours and hours a day. We have a really streamlined client portal that our clients are able to log into and see all of the regular status updates that we're giving them. Every time we have a meeting, it's logged and recorded and there are notes and action items that are clear for everyone. So everyone's on the same page about who needs to do what. And all of that comes from experience. We've built hundreds of different websites and we know intrinsically all of those random things that you're talking about that are hard to take into account upfront. But what we try to do is expose the parts of it where you're gonna get value from seeing what's going on or from being able to make a decision, but avoid overwhelming you by making some decisions on our own and kind of keeping you in the loop and informing you. So we wanna give you the amount of control that is best for you in the way that you work. And that can even differ on a client by client basis. That was my experience. It felt like the next right thing was always in front of me and I didn't put it there. Like you put it there <laughs> and it was always, it, it, it was like I was being guided through a process where I'm confident it was probably, you were putting the right thing for me to pay attention to for your process to build the site. But what I was impressed by was my own experience of just relief. Like, that the right thing was happening and all the other pieces were going to come around when they needed to at just the right moment. How much were you controlling me and I didn't know it? Well, the idea at Cantilever is that you don't necessarily have to think about that. So it's funny that you would say that. And I think that's exactly what we are shooting for is that it feels totally seamless and 
simple, but it's not. And part of that is just empathy and connection. And we really try to build great relationships with our clients, not in a working context, but just as people, so that we have that level of trust and understanding where when we're making decisions, we're making them on behalf of our clients, right? So if we don't really know our clients and their preferences and their strategy, we can't execute on that. Friends, if you're at home and you own a business and you're thinking you sell a complicated product or service and you want to deliver that level of simplicity, you actually want to break through the noise, I cannot encourage you more as a customer of Cantilever to go to cantilever.co and really start a conversation and just see what's possible. Yeah, so one uh, a book that I give to all young people that I mentor is a book called The Gift by Lewis Hyde, H-Y-D-E, who argues that there's a, such a thing as a gift economy that um, operates interdependent of capitalistic market system. And, and art and poetry are fundamentally part of the gift economy. And you can, and, and, and maybe you should make it into, uh, you know, part of the greater market system. But the, the, the important thing to realize is that the gift economy can exist apart from a capitalistic market transactional system. But capitalism cannot exist without the gift economy. What Lewis Hyde is talking about is every time you try to market something, you're creating an image, right? That uh, desire for something that most likely the person doesn't think that they need. So you're trying to be persuasive uh, in in your enterprise um, of creating a market system. And, and But that vision is something that is intrinsic to human nature, human desire. So Hamilton mm. is essentially, right, a liberal arts major coming coming out and walking around. You know, he grew up in Brooklyn where, you know, Ty's brother Clayton used to skateboard. Mm. And, and coming up with a communal, communal way of responding to post-9-11 despair. And that, so, so these, these things are not just fluff, extra, you know, they're, they're essential to now the capitalistic, um, you know, uh, commoditized system. But if you let the gift economy disappear and let that transactional, you know, uh, mechanism take over, it will kill the soul of um, whatever the tribe or reality or civilization or community. The poet needs to always reside herself in the gift economy and uh, transactional. There's a very important distinction between sort of abuse of capitalism and the Godzilla capitalist system that we currently exist within versus the concept of capitalism. And I think it can be useful and pertinent to what you just said, Mako, to sort of recalibrate or just reset on what we're dealing with here. So for me, I've thought about this a great deal because, you know, our business, we, we basically sell creativity and, and, you know, an artist does as well. And so you think, well, how, why, why, why does a transaction take place? And so when you look at the fundamentals of capitalism and of uh, market-based systems, the core uh, component of those systems is a transaction. And when you have a transaction, you have someone who has resources, capital, and you have someone who has a good or a service. And the fact that a transaction can be made indicates that each party is happy. So each party is drawing pleasure, drawing utility in the economic sense from the fact that a deal has been made, right? And so I think it is totally appropriate that a poet is able to take that poetry and sell that in a book and that people are able to buy that book that is not antithetical at all to me with the creation of poetry the art of poetry i think it is actually fundamental because it is a recognition a tangible public recognition of the value of that work for people there like i mentioned these albums like what would you pay to have the white album exist or not exist, right? Like, I think there's, there's, it's almost incalculable sometimes the value that we derive from art, even in a passing sense, the impact that it can have on our lives, on our lives and our experiences. And so when those transactions take place, I view that as the pinnacle 
of a healthy artistic world because I want artists to not have to feel like they need to suffer in order to give away some part of themselves for the greater good. I want them to feel that they have a role. The, the, the bard has a role. There's, there is value in creating these experiences for people, and that should be recognized through a transactional economy in the, the situation we're in. And just to wrap that thought up, I am very heartened by recent changes because I think in the 2000s, the art world was grappling with these ideas of around copyright and around the evolution of how art can spread through the internet. And so I think there were a lot of prognostications around how artists were going to make increasingly less because there would be less payment for, uh, for, for art because it couldn't be enforced. And what has actually ended up happening is that the art world has become decentralized. So the people who have suffered the most are the music labels, not the artists themselves, because the process of lowering the cost for everyone has ultimately cut those folks out in the same way that, you know, Craigslist killed the newspaper classified business. So for me, I think there's even more opportunity than ever as an artist to to build and and convert, you know, what you do into a living in some fashion. And the the prevalence and simplicity and ease of use of all of these technologies is is better than ever. And you can make an album, you can, you know, create a product, you can do a play. I'm not saying that that's easy. I, I understand it's profoundly difficult and it always has been. But I think the 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 wheels are greased a little bit more these days because the gatekeepers aren't as powerful and it's easier for audiences to engage directly with you to have a Patreon or have a a Kickstarter and to to directly say, no, I want this to exist. I I draw value from it. Nobody has to say it's good. Nobody has to fact, you know, make sure that that it's worth their investment. You know, it's 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 direct and simple. And I, I think that's going to be very, very good for art making uh, around the world. Talk a little bit about Cantilever and why why it is and and why would why would the the son of this artist go into this business? <laughs> Oh boy. Okay. That's a big question. So, um, our long-term mission as a company is to redefine the way that creative work gets done. So I started as a freelancer, uh, while I was in college, I was a math major at NYU. And most of what I did there was, uh, play poker <laughs> and do graphic design in the back of the class. Uh, so <laughs> I was, I was definitely not the, the most, um, most attentive student, but that time gave me the space to practice this, this craft. Um, and obviously, you know, there's a lot, I'll go briefly into the history. You know, Mako obviously had a great deal of, um, access to creative resources, right? So as I was growing up, I always had access to lots of interesting stuff to read and watch. And I was, you know, in, in all these interesting uh, shows and so on. And Mako's also very technologically oriented, which people don't quite understand either. So we always had a Macintosh. So I was very privileged and very fortunate to be able to, you know, go on Photoshop uh, as a 10 year old, um, you know, Photoshop one or two, you know, back, back yeah. in the day. Um, and that was my, that was my hobby. So I learned, I learned graphic design young and I kind of started up as a freelancer when I was in college and eventually that kind of grew into um, this larger practice. And the, the things I hear over and over from in, in our industry are painful. There's, there's a lot of difficult stories around how, first of all, it's difficult to be a designer in a business context where the, the world of typical business is not necessarily friendly to a creative. The, they're not uh, widget production, right? So, so ha being a creative requires a certain headspace and a certain context in order for you to do your best. And many companies are, are not great at providing that. And then simultaneously, you have the client experience. And the first thing that we hear all the time when we talk to clients is, oh my God, the last company, you know, you would not believe and that's that is sad. That's sad to me that the the standards of client experience in our industry are horrendously low. It's it's you know similar to construction. Everybody has some issue with their their construction person, and and I can't stand for that. 
that that doesn't seem right to me. So our mission as a company is is to fix that and to come up with a way that we can uh, almost like an operating system for running a creative business that allows for an easier method that creatives can work for businesses and businesses can hire creatives. And we are sort of the membrane between the two. And so my hope is that, you know, in 15, 20 years, there are uh, people who are kind of copying our methodology and, you know, it's, it's open to everyone. Uh, it is public. You can go to our website, you can read our handbook. It's got everything in there that we do. Um, and we, we want to see a world where this relationship is easier in a, in a very similar way to how, um, you know, we all hope that artists are able to more easily make a living off of their art. I think designers, developers, and other creative folks like that deserve a better uh, experience in, in their own marketplace and clients do as well. Mm-hmm. Maka, what, what are your thoughts on your son's uh, line of work? <laughs> well, he, I, I was his client, so um, <laughs> and and he wasn't in a lot of those calls. So I got to work directly with his staff, and uh, we hired much better designers. Yeah, so. it's, <laughs> uh, no, it's a really stellar company, and and I'm so um, um, you know more than proud of um, what he is able to accomplish. Um, a lot of it, I think, does come out of his upbringing and you know being being in a household where creativity and imagination was valued and and you know when when you see fruit of love uh, manifest itself in the world in some way you know you just rejoice right but but more importantly like like my website is something that you know is, is is hospitable even when you're looking at it on an iphone you know, one of the first things Ty did actually, because when Ty started to design website, my my website that he revamped in when was that two thousand six or something? Seven, yeah, yeah. Something like that. Yeah, iPad. So iPad had just come out, right? And and I'm just wistfully saying to him, you know, uh, it would be great to be able to translate what you know what's on the computer screen into iPad. I didn't realize how difficult that was. Yes, you know? but but yeah. Ty. Time came up with an algorithm um, in two weeks, and and then um, I, I think American Express called you because they were like looking at my <laughs> and saying, "This can't do this." <laughs> right? um, so you know, there's something about beauty of statistical um, algorithm that allows you know uh, Ty to also set the template. For his staff to, you know, work and and we always talk talk about we've given lectures on, you know, beautiful coding and beautiful ways that you know math math can play into technology and um and and all of that is you know part of art you know I, I I've always believed that there was a link between what I do as an artist and and technology certainly um, you know my father being a um, pioneer in research, research uh, science pure sciences um, we I grew up in that kind of assumption you know but but also just just my experience uh, personally of um, knowing that you know. Uh, um, a laptop is like a brush, you know, a brush is a tool. <laughs> Completely. Completely. So, yeah, yeah. So, I, uh, yeah. One of the main differences, one of the main reasons why I never seriously pursued an art career is, uh, my, my manual art making skills are, are, are lacking a little bit, <laughs> but I discovered, you know, I mentioned in these early days with, um, with the computer that I could make this thing put forth a vision. So I could I could imagine, you know, I could put in my mind the way that I wanted something to be. And through technology, I could make that happen. And that was very special. And I, I was just watching a, a, a lecture by um, Steve Jobs in the in the 80s when he he himself was just starting to understand the role that technology would play. And he makes this analogy that if you look at the, the efficiency of movement between different animals, humans are pathetic. So we expend way more calories per mile than many other animals. But if you look at the efficiency of a human on a bicycle, we are way better than any mm. other animal in terms of mm. efficiency of, of movement. And that's what technology does is it, it's, it's almost a prosthetic. So the, it, it both you know, can solve problems, but it can also enable new capabilities 
And that that is the power that I felt, you know, being being privileged enough to use this uh, kind of early technology and that that, you know, catalyzed my my movement into these spaces. And what's amazing to me is like it's still such a new thing. Our field is only really 20 years old. Mm. And so, you know, Cantilever was founded in 2011. I was a freelancer before that. So we're we're young in, in most terms. But in this industry, we we feel that we're old, old heads. You know, we, we've we've seen it all. Mm. Well, my last question. I'm sorry, Marco, I cut you off. What were you going to say? Oh, no, no, I was, I was just going to mention that, you know, my uh, older brother had a lot to do with this because he provided those computers that time was Indeed. And he's, he's a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. He's, he's a, you know, co-founder of Cadence, which which hit big on, on the market, uh, started several companies, um, but a deep learning expert now and, and and just remarkable thinker and and a business entrepreneur that Ty directly learned from, um, you know, and and in terms of business, I think my brother Aki had a lot to do with his success. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to mention that as well. Oh, that's Absolutely. so good. So the last two questions to both of you, it's so fun to have multi-generations in a conversation <laughs> like this because uh, you, you've nodded sideways, you know, to Ty's uncle, you've nodded past, you've nodded to your own kids, Ty. And, and, but I guess to each other, and then the final question will be to the listeners, for the listeners. But if there was something that you both want to learn from each other still, mm. like Mako, what do you want to learn from Ty? Ty, what do you want to learn from Mako still? Could you name that now? And then the follow-up question is going to be, if you could wave a magic wand for listeners, where would you want them to put their attention next, given the moment we're in? I, I have a good answer for the first one, so maybe I can start and give you some. You go, you go. Okay, so I, I've thought about this a lot, actually. Um, my orientation, my sort of natural mental approach is uh, an analytical approach. That's I'm, I lean more towards that side of the, the Myers-Briggs. Um, and so, you know, and I'm in a business, I'm in a creative agency. And so we are used to thinking about, you know, billable hours and about um, sort of the mechanics of turning sort of time into money. And <clears throat> that is a really bizarre uh, riddle when it comes to an artist because if you look at my dad's day and his timesheet for his work uh, it's like you know two hours for a nap a little bit of reading got some you know breakfast chat with a friend and then he's painting for you know an hour here 30 minutes there he's coming and going he's doing calls you know he'd probably go after this call and, and and work on something and so if you look at like the 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 billable rate when it comes to making a painting, it's kind of insane. Yeah. And it doesn't make any, it, it, the, the practice of being an artist almost like breaks the mechanics of business. So that is something that really challenges me mm-hmm. to develop a more holistic sense of how my life and my work interact. Because I, I personally am challenged by the mindset that like, if I'm not sitting at my desk writing computer code, I'm not productive. Ultimately, like I fear that I'm, I'm letting my family down if I'm not at my desk making stuff. And life is so much more nuanced than that. Business is more nuanced than that. And my, my actual results have only gotten better since I've leaned more into <laughs> things like building relationships, taking naps, <laughs> looking out the window, going for walks, meditating, right? These, these things that feel so frivolous mm-hmm. in the moment, they are often the most valuable. And that's, that's something I'm constantly trying to learn uh, from my father, and he's been a great model for, for that phenomenon. <laughs> so I'm gonna go take a nap now. Um, <laughs> I don't want to say you don't you you don't you don't work hard, but oh, no, no, I I fair do. amount of naps. I'll yeah, put it that. But I tell you what, though, you know what I actually what I learned from you, especially of late, um, both you and Clayton and Nvidia is is uh, how to listen to uh, your culture, you know, and and that's something that. I think my generation does not do well at all. <laughs> uh, we do not know how to listen well. Uh, we do not know how to value community over uh, individual success. Um, you, you may think that you struggle with this, but from my perspective, there's just such a 
stark difference between your generation and my generation that I, you know, I want to emulate, I want to learn. And by the way, you know, the things that I remember the most about our time in New York City is not the stress that we were under, uh, the bills we had to pay, you know, the accomplishments that I had to put on my resume. Uh, but it's 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 those frivolous moments when we wasted time throwing baseball or walked along the river uh, during a sunset. I, I remember these times when we didn't do anything. We were just hanging out, and and I made it my intention to literally schedule. You know, I would have like an hour where I would waste time <laughs> with my kids. <laughs> Uh, and and that those were the most memorable moments, and uh, and I dare say those were the most you know creative moments where we, you know there was productivity that came out of that that I wasn't anticipating, that I wasn't expecting, or you know that's that wasn't the goal. But um, so I, I I think those those are lessons of being an artist uh, in this frantic world, you know how to slow down. Uh, time but 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 also to create meaning out of uh you know out of our overly scheduled fractured and 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 children now you know they're the they're the busiest people on on this planet you know (laughs) (laughs) there are so many activities and and so we we um insisted that they have just you know time where they have nothing to do you know and had to create had to do something on their own, you know, and, um, you know, and, and going on the subway was one of them. I, 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 I you know, Ty is very responsible. He's not going to do something crazy. So we said, you know, we'll just give him a Metro card and he can go on his own to his friends. And, and I think that that was very important as, as far as his confidence in the world. He just didn't know that we were following him. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was just telling someone about how I used to go to the uh, the deli to get my mom would maybe pretend that she needed something. Yes. And she would hand me a, a, a little bit of money and tell me to go walk down the street to the deli. And I, I realized that having now been on the opposite side of this kind of mission, that uh, that I was not actually alone, but I I had the sense that I was, um, and and that 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 kind of thing is is so great. And you're you're right. It's there's something there's a there's a common thread there around what really matters, you know. And I think it's it's so easy to fall into a materialistic mm-hmm. mindset and a a fixed resource zero sum mm-hmm. mindset. And that actually that's 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 exactly how I what I would challenge the listeners with is to really evaluate where your mindset is is fixed at the moment where you're assuming that more isn't possible for you you know where where you believe that you've hit your limit because i think all of these things are much more malleable than we realize and the 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 art of living in some ways is about discovering the that those walls didn't really exist and you you push your hand through it and it doesn't really exist and uh, I think it, th- that can lead to some very profound experiences when it comes to your time, your capabilities, you know, going outside of your comfort zone. That can be that can be something grand that can be starting a new venture, but that can also be having that difficult conversation with a with mm-hmm. a partner that you've you've always wanted to have, but you always assumed you couldn't because of how they would feel. Well, maybe they wouldn't feel that way. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think there's the, the art art can be a vehicle by which we learn to challenge some of our assumptions and broaden our world and our sense of of who we are. Yeah. Totally. Uh man, I'm learning from that, Ty. Um and and I I think what I want to impress the listener with is is the assumption of scarcity that is not it's it's simply an assumption and the, the you know you you may you may not be religiously oriented but you have experienced in love when somebody loves you there's an assumption of abundance and that is enough sometimes to assume you know instead of assuming that everything is darwinian and everything is limited and everything is scarce and we have to fight our battles and you know fight our culture wars you know perhaps we should assume that 
you know, there there is love in the universe that holds it together, um, it, no matter what your belief system is, and and that there is an assumption of abundance that we see in front of us. Uh, as I see the sunset in front of me right now uh, in Princeton, um, and um, that that is, you know, why would sunset be so beautiful? Right. And, and every tree, every, you know, every blaze of grass is crying out to respond to that in some way that an artist can feel. Um, maybe, you know, an analytical person will have to spend time with an artist to feel that. But, but there is um, beauty in typography, beauty in information design, beauty in everything that, you know, we, uh, we work with, beauty in a, the staff, the team that we built, the beauty and, you know, how, um, you know, a soccer player uh, pivots um, in a play. That, that, so these things are signs of abundance. And, and I, I think, but the more we can focus on nurturing that, the, the better we are going to be able to listen to each other and, and, to, and to co-create uh, into something new. This was episode 10, season six of the Business of Creativity podcast. Converge is made possible thanks to cantilever.co and tellmeyourdreams.com. For all our past evergreen episodes with guests like Seth Godin, James Clear, Ann Handley, Ryan Holiday, Jazz Ampafar, Donald Miller, Mike Michalowicz, Sarah Green Carmichael, Brad Montague, Kevin Kelly, Todd Henry, Scott Stratton, Chase Reeves, Gretchen Rubin, Chris Gillibo, Starley Kine, and more, go to convergepodcast.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. See you next time. An Ironic Media Production. Visit us at ironicmedia.com.